Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love It's Lainey Mays with the library marketing team again, and we're back with another episode of Editors Unedited, and today I'm joined by Rachel Kahn, and I'm going to let her take it away. Hi, I'm Rachel Kahn. I'm an executive editor at William Morrow. I specialize in commercial fiction and nonfiction, which just means the kinds of books that you see at the front of your bookstore or you might read in a reader's group. Um, Basically, if it's a really good story and it's told really well, that's the kind of novel that I publish. And as an editor, I really love to publish first novels. I love to introduce new writers and new voices to readers. And I also personally love to publish authors from outside the US or authors whose work somehow showcases stories from immigrant or outsider communities. Um, Some of these novels that I publish are translated from other languages, but most are just by a diverse group of authors, um, many of them women of color who write in English. And a lot of these books go on to be bestsellers because this is a really popular corner of fiction today. The author that I'm talking with today has written a novel that, much to my delight, qualifies as all of the above. Um, Balikor Jaswal lives in Singapore, and while Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows is her third novel, it's her first to be published in the United States. Uh, Bali is Singaporean, and her heritage is Sikh Punjabi, but she has lived all over the world, including in the U.S., where she attended college, as well as Japan, Russia, Australia, Turkey, and the U.K. Erotic Stories, which is what we're going to call it for the sake of brevity, is set in a Sikh Punjabi community in Southall, which is in the suburbs west of London. Um, This novel tells the story of a young woman, Nikki, who is the daughter of Indian immigrants, and she's a very modern young British woman and kind of impulsively takes a job teaching writing at her local temple's community center. But while she thought that she was going to be teaching creative writing, the mostly widowed older women who sign up for the class thought that they were basically just going to be getting help learning remedial English. And it turns out that the kind of common ground that they find is this book of erotic short stories that get shared by accident. And that kind of blows up all the expectations about proper reading and writing. And soon the women are sharing erotic stories of their own, um, stuff that at first kind of shocks and then delights the class. Um, There's a lot more about this book that we'll get into, but it's been a big hit with American readers. Reese Witherspoon selected it for her Hello Sunshine book club. Um, It's gone on to sell over 100,000 copies, and the film rights have been sold to Ridley Scott's production company. Anyway, let's bring in the author now. Thank you for joining us, Ballycore Jaswal. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that wonderful um, and very detailed introduction. Uh, Now, just for the listener, because Bali is in Singapore and I'm in New York, I just got to work and she's about to go to bed, but I'm glad we get to do this podcast because while she and I have actually met several times, um, the time difference means that most of our communication is by email rather than phone. Um, So, Bali, I wanted to start by sort of talking about this book as... Uh, the novel of the immigrant community and 
a novel that highlights a lot of the tension between immigrant parents and their Western-born children. There's this growing, what I feel is a really important body of literature in English by immigrant and first-generation writers who really tackle this tension. Um, and I'm wondering if you can speak to what it's like kind of writing that, uh, that tension between um, immigrant parents and their first-generation children. Um, yeah, well, I think that intergenerational conflicts is probably the most compelling thing about them is that they're pretty universal, even though um, perhaps they're um, more pronounced um, between immigrant parents uh, and their children. Um, and so writing about that tension feels like I'm kind of tackling two things. I'm tackling a, a vital experience of being an immigrant, but I'm also um, reminding readers or, um, you know, sort of uh, exploring attention that a lot of people are familiar with. Everyone's probably had that, that experience of their, their parents um, just, just not communicating very well with their parents and just finding gaps and understanding between um, what they uh, perceive or their values and their parents' values, especially as they, they, um, they're teenagers and, and young adults. Um, so writing that tension was really important to me. Um, like I said, I do think it's just a vital part of that um, immigrant experience. And I, and I do think it's um, really heartbreaking from the perspective of, the, of both the children and the parents. So obviously my experience has been more of um, the, the child in that situation where, you know, trying to communicate with my parents or um, relatives of, of um, a previous generation uh, comes with a lot of conflict and a lot of a lot of miscommunication, um, a lot of wires being crossed. And uh, as I've written those stories, though, and as, as I've written about those conflicts, I've also had to then put myself in the shoes of the parents and think about um, how difficult it would be to be a parent moving to a new country um, and you know raising your child with 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 the values that you grew up with. Uh, and the values that you know that that, um, that 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 seem to you to be stable um, and, and and a good sort of guide to to follow through life, and for your children to then grow up and, and grow distant from you in a way that you hadn't anticipated, because not only is there that that um, generation gap, but for immigrant parents, there's also this language gap and this culture gap, and their children sort of wanting to be. Um, different from them in, 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 cult, in so many cultural ways, um, I think that would be incredibly challenging for the parents. And, I, and I, as, as I've written these stories, I've, I've actually um, learned to empathize with, with both sides. Did you mine your own experiences for this? I mean, you grew up, we should say, you grew up in the Punjabi community in Singapore where the population is Asian, but you and your family were still very much part of a religious and ethnic minority. Um, do you feel, is that different from, say, the experience of your characters who are Punjabi in a white country? Um, is there is there a, sort of a, uh, a difference there? That, or did you mine your own experiences in the same way? I suppose the, the east-west divide. Um, so, you know, for Punjabi Sikh um, girls, especially growing up in, say, um, London or New York, I think that the gap between the home culture, um, like the gap between the parents' culture and the, the wider um, culture at school um, or among their peers would be pretty big. Um, but 
it, it was that way in Singapore as well, because although Asia generally is is um, perhaps more conservative than the West, um, still my my um, friends from the Chinese majority population were still um, allowed more freedom than, than we um, Jabi girls were allowed. Um, there are also certain like cultural rules that uh, we felt nobody really understood. Um, things like you know, Sikh uh, women are supposed to keep their hair long. Um, the, the fact that you know our, our parents didn't let us wear you know shorts um, or you know had problems with us shaving our legs, um, didn't let us talk to boys. Those are things that like my my especially as we were teenagers, my my Chinese friends actually experienced more freedom with that, and they got to go out a lot more. So I think that. Um, there, there was still a clash between two cultures, even though perhaps there, it wasn't as um, um, obvious a clash as the, perhaps the, the Punjabi versus British clash or the Punjabi versus American clash. In my case as well, I, I read a lot of fiction when I was a teenager about um, Indian American women. Uh, you know, the, I think it was in the 90s when there was a real uh, uh, when, when publishing became very diverse in, in that way and, and, and started to um, uh, promote a lot of these narratives about the, the immigrant experiences. Um, and, you know, authors like Jabal Lahiri, uh, Monica Ali, uh, Nikita Lawani, who, who came along a little bit later, I think I was in my 20s by then, they really explored that tension uh, in a really realistic uh, and nuanced way. I think I, I drew a lot of inspiration from them. Uh, my my experience was similar to that as well, but my experience was a little bit different as well because we uh, lived in different countries and we um, often were in these um, sort of diplomatic enclaves. So we were. So I would. I lived in a Punjabi Sikh household, but then I went to international or American schools. And the culture of those schools, but even though they were in Japan and the Philippines, um, the culture of those schools were very, very American. Uh, and so all the same things like, you know, pep rallies and prom mm-hmm. and, and all the same things that you would have uh, in, in, in a, an American high school, we had them. And I think we had, we, we emphasized them even more because there were a lot of American kids at those schools uh, and their parents really, really wanted them to experience um, their home culture, you know, even more so because they were outside the country. So they kind of had this immigrant clash of their own. Uh, oh, that's or... interesting. Did you go to prom? I did go to prom, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and like I said, our our um, our high schools, I mean, it, I, uh, the, the high schools that I went to, especially the ones that I went to in the Philippines, um, looked like an American high school from television. They probably preserve some traditions that um, American high schools have probably moved on from in the same way that immigrants do that, the same way that immigrants um, will preserve like the values of the village that they left behind. And they're still kind of referring to those traditions and values from the 1960s when, when everyone back in the village has actually moved on. So it, it, was, it was sort of like that. And so we, we had a lot of those clashes because when I was at home, I was in a Punjabi Sikh household. But when I was in school, I was very much in America, actually. Um, and so there was, there was a big uh, culture clash there that, that my parents had to adjust to. And then you chose to go to college in the U.S. How did your parents feel about that? You sort of continued the, the cultural shift from high school to college in the U.S. 
Yeah, and that was, that was um, primarily because most of my classmates were going to high school um, in in America. Um, a lot of a lot of my classmates were U.S. citizens, or they were they were from America. Um, for me, it was a little bit different. I think um, I, I think my, my parents sort of expected that um, if I went to university, I was we were going I was going to return to Singapore, um, and they didn't they didn't expect me to want to go to America. Uh, and once that idea was put in my head, it was really, really hard to deter me, uh, particularly because America had so many choices. There were liberal arts colleges. There were colleges, you know, the, I mean, the way America markets its colleges as uh-huh. well, you really, you just have, there's, it just seemed uh, open to so many choices. There were places where you could design your own major. Like, all of it was just so appealing to me. Um, and, and my, my parents hadn't accounted for that. They also hadn't budgeted for yeah. that. So then um, the, 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 I think a way that they tried to deter me was to say that they, they wouldn't pay for it. Um, and so I ended up um, applying to every um, college that would give um, scholarships to international students. I wasn't I wasn't a straight A student, so <laughs> a lot of colleges said, No, I'm not gonna give you a scholarship. Um, and there was a lot of disappointment and heartbreak before I, I eventually got an offer from Holland University, um, a, a small women's college in Virginia. And and for me, I mean the, the I, I was I loved to write and I knew I wanted to do something with writing. I think that was part of it as well. My parents said, you know, why would you go so far away to do something so useless <laughs> in <laughs> their view, um, to just continue writing stories. Um, uh, and Holland's, uh, I was just so lucky. They, they gave me a scholarship, and they also happened to be um, a, a university with an incredible creative writing program. So I stepped into that world, and I sort of never looked back. So did you immediately go into a creative, write into kind of creative writing mode when you were in college? Is that where your first short stories and first fiction was written? Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess my first short stories um, were written, uh, you know, all through primary school, all through um, secondary school. And I actually, um, throughout primary school, like in, in the Singapore education system, with which I um, really abhor for, for a number of reasons because it's really rigid and competitive uh, and everyone just takes exams all the time from the time they're seven or something. Um, we do have this great class, though. I, I, I'm not sure if they still have it. I think they do called composition, where you basically, like, you write stories and you're given, like, a picture prompt or, uh, you know, like a, 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 a verbal prompt. And, and you're given this time period to just write a story from beginning to end. And, it, and, and you're... And I loved it. It was kind of the only school thing in school that I loved. Um, and I remember spending a disproportionate amount of time doing compositions because I just enjoyed storytelling so much. Um, and then that kind of faded away. Like as you got to sort of um, upper secondary school, composition sort of made way for um, essay writing. Basically, like how can you use writing skills for a vocation? So editorials and, and letters to the editor and stuff like that. Um, so then writing became something for me that um, became a bit of a secret because it was uh, something that you do as a child and it was a, it was a childish pursuit. Um, and, and, and I was kind of discouraged by, by teachers and, and my parents and other adults from, from writing stories because that was, that was silly and that was um, not going to lead anywhere. So I was very um, embarrassed that I liked to write. 
Um, and then we moved to the Philippines, and I went to an international school where, you know, because of the, the, the academic curriculum in that school that was very much focused on getting people into college, it was the same thing. It was a lot of, um, you know, writing essays, and uh, you don't, we didn't really write anything creative. But I had an English teacher who gave us this one writing assignment once. She said, you know, I just want to read something different for a change. So nothing analytical, just write a story. Um, and write a, a story that mimics the language in the novel that we're reading, which is like water for chocolate. Oh, wow. Um, and I, yeah, and I took the, I just went home and I wrote something and I just thought, God, this is terrible. This is so melodramatic. And this, you know, I, I was, that, that, I just had that, was filled with that sense of shame that I um, was a writer. It was really strange. But I, I didn't hand it in. I refused to hand it. I, I stuck it at the bottom of my bag, and um, my, my teacher kept asking me for, for this piece of writing, and she was like, you're going to get a zero. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you tomorrow. <laughs> I kept putting it off. And then finally uh, she approached me and said, you know, you're about to fail. You need, you need to hand this in. And I very reluctantly handed this, this thing in, uh, this story in, and it had been like two or three weeks since it was due. And... She gave it back to me a couple of days later with an A, like 10 out of 10. And she wrote, I'm going to forgive that this is late because it is so good. And then she wrote, you have to keep writing. And, you know, it was just that. It was just that moment that changed things for me. I was 16 or 17, I think. I really just didn't know who I was um, and, and what I was. It just seemed like I wasn't really good at anything or I didn't really... I didn't really care about any particular thing. I knew I liked to read, but you know, I just didn't think that that, that was um, that was who I was. And when she said keep writing, that just um, sealed that part of my identity, and it really lit a spark. Um, and that when I was looking at colleges, that that was what I referred to. I said I want to keep writing. This, this, you know, some someone recognized that work. Um, and, and that love that I have for writing. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing this. That's such a great story, especially for <laughs> for me as as we've worked together. I can sort of see how, like, what I call sometimes just uncorking the bottle is the hardest part yeah. with with some writers and and giving yourself permission to be imaginative and and not to ask permission to develop your own voice is really hard for a lot of writers. And I love that it was Laura Esquivel's book too, because that's a book that's so rich in imagination and women's experiences and it's sexy and it's got food and it's got, you know, all those things that I know you and I both love um, to read. So that, that just gave me like a real flash of of insight into your writing that I wouldn't have had if we hadn't had this conversation. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about like the imaginative things in this book? Like that there's some naughty bits, there's really hot and sexy fantasies um, in this book and they're they're dreamed up by by what seem to be these these very proper Punjabi widows who I think a lot of um, Westerners would think like, oh, these poor women, like they're, they've been terribly repressed. Like what could they possibly have going on? Um, you know, uh, let's, let's talk about that. How did you come up with their voices and how did you kind of unleash all of the, um, the really erotic, sexy bits of this book? Well, once I came up with the concept of writing um, 
a, a story like this, a novel about a group of Punjabi widows um, who start an erotic storytelling club, um, it, it just made sense to me that they would talk about their desires um, in, in the context of stories, that they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable uh, talking directly about what they wanted and what they were denied, although some of them then reveal that stuff uh, as, as the novel goes on. But I thought that the best way to, um, you know, to, to explore sexuality um, was through fantasy. And so these women um, had these these fantasies, and some of them were, you know, sort of loosely based on on things that they had seen on television or just things in daily life. Like a lot of them, or you know, a lot of the stories um, are still quite domestic. Like they take place in the realm of an arranged marriage or a honeymoon. Uh, or something that's happening between uh, two sisters-in-law. Um, so they, they, it's still, it, it, they're, they're fantasies, um, but they're also very much part of their world, which I felt was, was important to keep um, the stories realistic. Um, I also kind of tapped into the idea that uh, women, uh, no matter how much they've been silenced and, and told they can't um, talk about um, taboo issues like like sexuality or taboo topics, um, when they find a space and when they find a, a trusting relationship with each other, when there's a safe space, especially if they're away from men or people who say that they can't talk about those things, they talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they unleash a lot of things, and I think and I think that that's very true of women in conservative communities. I I, I mean you you may have. Some experience with this, Rachel, um, because you know you're from the, the Jewish community. I don't know if you've, you've ever, uh, you, you know that like older women when they get together, they they I don't know they say some really dirty things. Oh my gosh! When I um, <laughs> when I was trying to have children, um, I was I remember being with sort of unusually because I'm not Orthodox, but I was. Um, with a group of Orthodox women um, at a, a mikvah, which is uh, the sort of ritual bath where Orthodox women go. It's a long story how I wound up there, but um, yeah. So they they kind of asked me like, "Oh, you're married? You know, are you are you trying?" I was like, "Yes." You know, my husband. I just got married. My husband and I would really want to have children. I was in my late thirties at this point, and I mean, some of these women were like in their early forties and grandmas because they'd had children at twenty, and their daughters had had children at twenty. And oh my gosh, when they found out I was looking to have children, the advice I got about, and I mean, these are women who are in buttoned up to the neck, long skirts, wigs, and they're like telling me what position my husband and I should be having sex in to sort of (laughs) maximize our chances. And it, it was, especially as someone who, you know, was raised very much in like a very progressive feminist kind of Jewish tradition, it did blow up my my notions a little bit about what these like ultra orthodox women were like because mm-hmm. they they like got into it and they got into it with a sense of like real joy you know they were happy talking yeah. about this this was like their their thing they um, and we were in a completely like women's space, like what the feminists would call women's space with a Y. You know, there were no men around. It was really very cool and eye-opening. And I, you know, I have two children now, so I guess some of their advice worked out okay. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I feel like we're in this political moment where we're talking a lot about what it means to to listen to women um, and how um, women's voices are are just kind of 
shut out and um, I feel like that's we seem to be moving towards improvement in, in that but um, there is a lot of that in this book uh, that these women actually do have voices. Um, can you talk more about how you approach that as as a female writer this idea of women's voices and um, and the ways that that they're kind of pressured? Um, yeah, so I think there, there, there are multiple layers, there are multiple things that are um, restricting these women from talking about um, from, 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 from talking about a number of things. And I do think that, that so all of those layers that have come are passed down from the, the patriarchy. What's interesting is that in this novel, there is um, you know one woman who's very traditional and, 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 and remains that way. And, and her story sort of unravels um, throughout the novel. We, we, we learn a, a few more things. Um, about her upbringing and 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 um, her her very hard life, um, and I and I find those women really fascinating, um, and I wanted to include that element to it as well because I do think that there are some women who police other women in these spaces, um, or or just make these spaces feel unsafe. But I do think that they are acting as agents for the men, um, and I do think that the men in some way use them to kind of uh, keep the women in line because the men aren't allowed to enter those women's spaces. Um, and so like a lot of the, the um, sort of sexist notions that I grew up um, knowing about other uh, about how to be a, a girl and how to be a woman, a lot of that was passed down from uh, stern women in the community who um, you know, felt that it was their responsibility to keep girls in line. I didn't really hear it very much from the men, even though I knew that it was the men's ideals of what girls should be and that the women who um, passed these, these things down sort of um, were, were embodying these ideas that, that, that the men, um, you know, their fathers and their husbands had sort of ingrained into them. Um, so as, as a writer, I felt it was important to include that, but I also wanted to include a lot of pushback mm-hmm. from, from the widows, from the women. Um, and, and, and to go back to the idea of the intergenerational conflict, I also wanted to include sort of different ideas of what it means to speak out and what it means to be a feminist. Um, because Nikki, the main character, um, she's in her early 20s, and she has a very black and white approach to um, to, to feminism. So she feels like there's there's a wrong and there's a right. Um, and she feels that there uh, that, that she's got the right idea and these women need to be liberated. And she goes into Salva and she goes into this community with this really uh, a slightly patronizing approach to these women. Um, she feels like there, there's a lot they can learn from her and she actually, <laughs> she actually ends up um, learning about the nuances um, of, 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 of the experiences of women and how we all start from different places and that she actually comes from a great deal of privilege because she grew up in Britain, she grew up with an education um, and her parents, although she considered them quite straight and, and um, um, you know, really conservative, they're, they're, they're not compared to the parents of these women, some of whom were married off when they were children mm-hmm. uh, and some of whom faced, you know, really, really sort of I would say life or death consequences um, to disobeying their husbands. Um, so she gains an understanding of um, how difficult it might be for some women to speak up and for some women to talk about injustices in their community, and that it's not just as easy as going, "Oh, why don't you stand up to the men?" Because you know there are some 
real um, and, and very painful consequences for them. So once this, let's talk about the publication of this book, because this book was published in the U.S. and in the U.K. It was a bestseller for many, many weeks in Singapore. Um, what kind of response did you did you get? And I'm really curious about older women, um, especially Punjabi women from the community you grew <laughs> up in and, you know, women from around the world. What, what kind of feedback did you get? So I've gotten a lot of feedback from, from women around the world. Um, I've gotten feedback from Indian women, um, some, yeah, some Punjabi women, uh, you know, who, who've, it, it's all been really positive. So that's really nice. I've, I've had uh, women write to me and say, good for you. This is, this is the kind of story that we need, uh, which, is, which is really reassuring. <laughs> uh, I've also heard from Punjabi men. So I've actually also heard from um, older Punjabi men saying that they were proud um, and that they were pleased um, that the story was, was being told, uh, which, which I didn't expect. And then it made me kind of um, consider uh, what my preconceived ideas were of, of men in the community that I was so uh, ready to kind of write them off <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, to, think, to think that there would be, there was going to be a backlash that was going to come from them. Uh, there, there really hasn't been that. Um, if there has been any sort of, you know, um, uh, very strong negative reaction um, to the content of the novel, I haven't heard it. Um, I have heard, I think the, the worst I've heard is um, a, a, a young, and this, this is really quite disappointing, a, a young community leader in the Sikh community in Singapore um, who who shares a mutual friend with me and who has approached me before to say, you know, good for you for writing these books, um, told my friend in private <laughs> that he wished I didn't, um, I, I didn't always focus on the negative aspects of the community. Uh, you know, he, he wished I didn't shed such a, a negative light on things. Um, to which my response is, you know, I, I'm not here to uh, promote uh, the, the community in, in any sort of light. I'm not here to be a PR agency for a community. I'm writing from my experience. And the fact is, it's a wonderful community. It is a supportive and warm and welcoming community, but it's a double-edged sword as well. That to every traditional community, there are going to be people on the margins, and they should feel included as well. And if they don't feel included, then that's the story I'm going to tell, because it means that we're not working hard enough and we're not doing well enough as a community if some people feel as if um, they don't belong. Mm-hmm. I think so. You know, it was interesting. I, I think I told you this before. Um, after Reese Witherspoon picked this book for her book club, I I spent a lot of time lurking around on the book club social media feeds because I just wanted to, to see people's responses to this book. And on Facebook, nobody knows that I'm the book's editor. So, um, And I just really loved that so many of these women um, in the U.S., but also around the world because the social media goes everywhere, um, so many of them would say things like, oh, wow, this book, like, it isn't my usual thing, but I really loved it. Or they would say, I would never have known to pick up this book, but it's great. And that, as an editor, like it makes me really happy because I'm a big believer in always reading different things and reading outside your comfort zone. It's what I like to do as a reader. It's how I feel like I experience the world. Um, And part of my, my kind of larger ulterior motive as an editor is that I want Americans, particularly white Americans like me, to do a lot more of that. Um, but I'm sort of curious as to 
how these responses make you feel as a writer who is not American, who is a woman of color, you're writing about a minority community. Um, how, do, how do you read that feedback? Well, it's interesting because I, I lurked a little bit <laughs> until the response, the, the comments became a bit overwhelming um, on, on that Reese Witherspoon post. And, and what I picked up on, uh, two things. One, that um, a number of people, uh, I, I, I got the sense that they were saying this isn't so much my thing because it's erotic in the title. Cause, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's some people who are really, really turned off. It, it funny, it had a very, really polarizing effect, that title. Um, some people really turned off by the word erotic and said, I'm not, I'm not reading that. Um, and others just going, oh, wow, that sounds, that sounds hilarious. I, I want to pick that up, which is what I sort of hoped for mm-hmm. when, I, when I gave the book that title. Um, the other thing I picked up on was um, Punjabi people uh, on, uh, commenting and saying, thank you, Reese, for including our stories, or thank you, Reese, for um, picking a book that has Punjabi in the title. Like that, the, the idea that um, someone, you know, as, as widely known as Reese Witherspoon um, could, could uh, highlight a book uh, that had the name of a community in it that, that, that people often feel like they have to explain to others and people often, you know, people have to define that for other people. I think that was really exciting for a number of Punjabi readers and, 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 I, and I, I, I got a sense of that excitement too. Um, I do think that some of the, uh, you know, previously I mentioned that um, some older people in the community, or, or some, particularly some of the older men in the community, when they write to me, they're really excited. Um, they're really excited about representation. They're really excited about the word Punjabi in the title as well, and they're very excited about a Punjabi author um, being publicized widely. I, I think that that has something to do with their pride in the novel. Not to say that they haven't read it or they, they don't like the content. I don't know. But I know that I, I do get uh, messages from from people from that generation saying, "I'm so excited that a Punjabi author was, you know, mentioned uh, by Reese Witherspoon." They they get really um, uh, they they feel really seen, which is really nice. That's cool. Do, have your parents read the book? <laughs> I don't. You know, I don't know. If my dad has. Um, he hasn't mentioned it. Uh, my my mom has, and I was really. When I wrote the novel, every time I wrote an erotic story or like I wrote a steamy sex scene, I, w- I did cringe at the thought of my mom reading it. I, I, did, I try not to let that um, impact me too much. But the, the only way I could sort of feel comfortable was by telling myself to tell her that I wasn't the one who came up with the story that was the widow. <laughs> I could excuse it that way. Um, and she did She did really enjoy the novel. She kind of, she briefly... Um, Oh, she scolded me a little bit <laughs> for, for having such dirty scenes. Um, and she did say that she she had a chat with she she has my mom has a lot of friends um, in in their mid thirties, <laughs> um, South Asian like you know, young mm-hmm. sort of um, Indian and Pakistani friends in the compound that she lived in in Saudi Arabia with my dad when the novel came out. Uh, and so she she said that she was chatting with a friend of hers. Um, after she read the novel and said, you know, I'm having a hard time believing that it's my daughter who put these words uh, to the page because some of these 
things are so adult and they're so, you know, they're, they're, there's so much sex in this novel. And her friend told her off, which is really funny. Like her friend was like, well, what do you expect? Your daughter is an adult. And, you know, she, she, she went to college overseas. Like this, you know, this is who she is. And I thought that was really nice. That's, that's great. I had this one Southern author, this, uh, this lady from Mississippi who I edited many years ago. And she said, you know, mm-hmm. that my first, um, my first most important thing as a writer is not to embarrass my mama. Um, and then she went on to, to write, oh my gosh, stuff that I'm sure horribly embarrassed her mama. Can you tell us a little bit about your, um, your next book? And I also wanted to ask, because I already know about your next book, so I'll let you tell our listeners about the next book. But also just sort of curious whether you might write a book set in Singapore or the U.S. anytime soon. Um, yeah, well, I'll start by talking about the next book. So um, it's titled The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters, and it's about three British Indian sisters um, who don't get along with each other, and you'll, you'll see early on why they're, they're quite different from each other. Um, their mother has passed away, and before dying, their mother uh, wrote them a letter and um, asked that they do a pilgrimage in her honor um, and that they travel to India and, and do certain tasks for her that she couldn't carry out because she was too ill. Um, the novel, throughout the journey, lots of secrets surface about their past um, and about things that are going on in their lives that they haven't um, been very honest about with each other and, and with themselves, really. Um, and, I was, and I was just really interested uh, when I wrote it uh, in the, the road trip narrative um, because so, so many so many road trip novels and no, road trip novels in uh, India in particular are told from a male perspective um, and traveling as a man especially in India is very very different from traveling as a woman uh, you know in, in light of, of events in the last couple of years that have been publicized about uh, women being harassed in India uh, and, and, and gang rapes and things like that um, traveling in India for a woman, as a woman, you feel really vulnerable, um, and, and it's, it's just a, a completely different experience. I wanted to capture that, and then the idea of um, pilgrimages and the, the rituals that are completed that, that people might not necessarily believe in, but they you know, they do them um, for, for somebody else or, or because everybody else is doing them. And then, and then other things about, you know, violence against women and um, just being very different kinds of modern British women. So going back to to the second part of that question, you've written these books that are sort of set in the the British community of the Indian diaspora. Are there, do you have books that you might write that are set in the U.S. or that are set in Singapore? Because I know you've written about Singapore in the past. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I actually have, um, I have a very detailed sort of chapter-by-chapter chapter plan at the moment for a novel set in Singapore. Uh, I just have to find the time to write it. Uh, but it's, it's uh, about uh, four, four domestic workers in Singapore, so women, women um, who come here from the Philippines uh, who, who work uh, as nannies and, and helpers and nurses' aides um, for um, Singaporean families. Uh, and it's about one of them being accused, uh, falsely accused, of murdering her employer, and how the other women band together to help to um, prove her innocence. Uh, and and it's, you know, it's, it's, I think 
it'll take the same sort of tone as my other novels, and that sort of dark comedy, slight sort of satire, and 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 sort of exposing the hypocrisies of of um, the, the the wider Singaporean community um, and, and how they they treat domestic workers. Uh, I I have so many ideas for the characters and for the stories. I'm just like I said, I'm just I'm just waiting for the opportunity to to, to begin writing it. Um, but I can see it all in my head, which is really exciting. Um, as for a novel set in the U.S., I do have something in mind, actually, and it hasn't formed, uh, you know, it, it's not as well formed as the other idea about the, the helpers in Singapore, so I might, I might, um, it might take a while for it to, to develop. Uh, but I, this one starts as more from the concept of um, how, how, immigrants and women have in common, and, and so immigrant women in particular, uh, have this, there's this expectation um, of, of them being useful to society in some way. Um, like there's a lot of rhetoric, you know, in the, in the, the um, there's, there's a lot of rhetoric about how immigrants uh, should be brought over to countries because look at how much they do for us and look at like the, especially the restaurants people always say the restaurants look at all the food uh, look at all the, the the great things they do for us and and women there's this rhetoric around women as well like look at how much they do they have children they they're useful for childbearing um, and I just I, I've never been satisfied by that I feel that you know immigrants should be accepted into a community or into a country because they want to be there because <laughs> because they, they want a better life and that um, it shouldn't be so much about how they can serve a country and a community. So I find it quite problematic when, when people talk, and I know that it's well-meaning, you know, what they're saying is we want immigrants here because they, they help to build an economy, but I, I do feel that, that that's still a way of um, putting them somewhere lower down on the hierarchy where they have to sort of work their way up by serving the country. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I'm very interested in writing a novel, again, a dark comedy, although I don't know what shape the story is gonna take, uh, but I've got a character in mind who is a Punjabi Sikh uh, woman in either her late 30s or early 40s who um, has fertility issues. She's, she's unable to have children. And in you know the, the current Climate that's so hostile to um, immigrants and particularly to um, South Asian uh, people. I'm just very interested in the world that she has to navigate as, as a woman who is not considered useful or as a person who's not considered useful um, by, by, by um, the patriarchy and also by um, just the, 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 the people who believe that, that immigrants need to do something for them in order to be validated. Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait to read that. Um, okay, Bali Korja Aswal, thank you so much. Um, you're going to bed now. because um, It's got to be about, what, 10 p.m. where you are. Um, thank, thank you for staying up to talk with us. And um, I'm Rachel Kahn at William Morrow. Thank you for joining us.